0: What's going on, guys? Sean Birdsong here, Sharon Ledelon. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Court. Today we have a special guest with us today, 12-year NBA veteran, four-time NBA All-Star, and a member of the National Basketball Collegiate Hall of Fame, my dad. stole Birdsong. What's going on, man?
1: What's going on, Sean? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you trimmed your beard. Last time I saw you, you looking like James Harden. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was cold earlier, you know, so I had to trim it down a little bit. <laughs> you have that
2: youthful look back, thankfully. Uh, appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> he, wor- now, he, he worries about it because then the, then he ages. That's why.
0: <laughs> right. Oh, okay. So speaking of James Harden, you know, you, you played a 12-season NBA, uh, seven of those years you played in New Jersey. We're going to get to your career in a little bit. Um, but, you know, they, the Nets made a big trade. Uh, during this season um, with James Harden. Have you been watching the Nets this year?
1: And how far do you think the Nets can go? Of course, I've been keeping up with uh, the Nets, especially because of the relationship that I have with the owners, uh, Joe and Clara, Sai, and uh, Oliver Weisberg, of course. So I followed the Nets closely. Um, it was a great trade. I had some concerns initially. I didn't think um, Harden because he's so used to having the ball in his hands that he would fit in. And the jury is still out because um, he's able to play with the ball now because Durant is not there. When Durant gets back, now it's going to be whether or not those three guys can share the basketball. And if they do that, I don't see anyone beating them in the East. Um, I would say they definitely should be in the NBA Finals. And it would be interesting to see them play the Lakers, especially if the Lakers are full speed.
3: Yeah.
0: Now, you're from Winter Haven, Florida. Um, Can you talk about, you know, what it was like growing up in Winter Haven, Florida? Um, And, you know, was sports always a part of your life?
1: Uh, No, not really. Um, Well, and then again, I, I say basketball wasn't always a part of my life. Growing up in Winter Haven, the Boston Red Sox used to spring train in Winter Haven. So all of us were huge baseball fans. All of us grew up playing baseball. All of us aspired to be professional baseball players. That's what we wanted to do because of the Red Sox. And we integrated the schools in Winter Haven in like 1968, 1969. And we went out for the football team. All of us were playing football. And it was so many of us out for the team. It was like 500 kids tried out for the team. <laughs> they had all of the white players from last year who was on the team, and then they had all of the black players in school who were trying out. So the coach said, if you're late to practice, if you miss practice, if you're injured and can't play, you're going to get cut. I got hurt the first day. I <laughs> sprained my ankle the first day of practice and they cut me and I never played football again I just started focusing on basketball and that was in the ninth grade so that's when I really started focusing on uh, playing basketball but football was secondary baseball was the sport when I was growing up but I started playing basketball in the ninth grade because I got cut in football right now I remember you told me stories
0: um you know of course with you your battles on Norris and Everybody, you know, grandma had, you know, 12 kids. Um, so, how was that competition wise, um, sports wise growing up uh, for you to have an older brother um, to compete with, but also other siblings um, to just, you know, be, be involved in sports and things like that?
1: Well, actually, I was very fortunate because Naris and I are a year apart and we competed against each other in Little League Baseball. In fact, my team played his team in the uh, Little League so-called World Series. It was the championship series. And growing up, we used to take baths together. You know, mama used to conserve water. So he, my brother, we would take baths together. I'm just telling you the truth. And so we won the championship. We beat them in like the seventh game. And after the game, he and I almost like twins. He would not shake my hand. (laughs) He didn't talk to me. We competed and worked out against each other all through high school. I mean, he was playing football. He stopped playing basketball and was focusing on football and eventually got a football scholarship. But he was so competitive. He could have made it in basketball. I mean, he was a heck of a basketball player. In fact, when we were in the ninth grade, he came from the football team and he was our leading scorer because he shot all the balls. I shot less and made more, but he took more shots and made less, but because he was getting more shots, he was the leading scorer. And mama used to tell him, why you shoot all the time? You need to pass the ball to Otis. (laughs) He would shoot, when I tell you he shot every time, that boy shot every time.
3: Hmm.
1: But um, it really helped having him like when I would go run five miles a day, he would be right there running with me. We would lift weights together. We would compete against each other. So it was a huge help to have a sibling like that push me and I pushed him as well.
2: That's good to know. So since you played basketball in ninth grade, can you tell us a little bit about your high school experience?
1: Sharon, growing up, like I mentioned, in Winter Haven, we didn't integrate the schools till I was in eighth or ninth grade. And so when we, back then the ninth grade kids were not in high school, it was just strictly a junior high school, ninth grade only. So by the time I got in high school, we had mm-hmm. a JV team in the 10th grade. And my, okay. our varsity team was so good, even though I was really, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying I was really good in the 10th grade, but they couldn't bring me up because our varsity team was like, they lost one game, my 10th grade year, They were like 30 and one. They lost in the state championship in seven overtimes. Wow. Seven overtimes. I was there in Jacksonville, Florida. But it still was, um, integration was still new. So you had all white coaches Mm -hmm. and my junior year, even having a great sophomore year, the guy that I was playing behind, his dad, was the president of the Booster Club. The entire school knew that I should have been starting. It was the first three or four games. And I was upset, I was mad, I was complaining. Everybody knew I should have been starting. So the coach, the white coach sent me to the guidance counselor who was black. And because he had told me if I kept complaining, they were gonna kick me off the team because I was Mm -hmm. disrupting the team and the school. So the guidance counselor told me, said, Otis, look, your time will come
2: just be quiet,
1: mm-hmm. let it go. Sure enough, the guy severely sprains his ankle like a game later. Seriously, <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up. He severely sprains his ankle and he never got off the bench again. It was, it was fake. <laughs>
3: right. Well, that's one way. That's a
1: true story. So, it's a true I know. Story. So, And so, I my junior say- year, we, we were. We should have won the state championship my junior year. Mm -hmm. We were like ranked um, third in the nation. I mean, in the state. And going into the playoffs, you played two regional games. I mean, two district games, two regional games, and then the state playoffs. Well, we had the district in our gym. The district tournament was in our whole gym. The team we were playing in the first round, we had beat them twice. Blown them out. But I was the only underclassman starting, so we lost. The seniors left the locker room laughing and joking. The underclassmen, we were devastated, crying, everything. And the coach told us, you all will be seniors next year. Don't let this happen to you all. And, of course, it did. My senior year, we won the state championship in 1973. And to this day, when I even high school, the boys, they've been like three or four times, but we haven't won it since. The girls have won it like... Six or seven times. In fact, the girls were there this year in the state. They lost, but they won it like six or seven times. Right. So, now when were you?
2: Know, you go ahead, Sharon. I, I said, when were you noticed by, I guess, like you said, junior, starting junior, year, um, senior, year by senior, year, you already getting offers or being looked at by people and, you know, to your university to go to college? When did that start? Really, be. Yeah, sure, you got to keep it. In
3: mind.
1: Now, it's, it's 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 not like it is now. You know, like right. the um, ESPN one hundred and and All American Game and all that. We didn't have that back then. We mm-hmm. had a high school All American Game in in Florida, but um, it wasn't like it is now. They start recruiting these kids in grade school. Right. They know about these kids. So I really wasn't thinking about getting a scholarship i wasn't playing ball for a scholarship because mama made sure all of us went to college anyhow i'm from a family of 12 like sean mentioned 11 of us went to college the majority of us graduated from college the 12th one didn't go because she was physically challenged uh, so she couldn't go
3: Mm -hmm. i
1: wanted to ask you um
0: you know we talk about on the show beyond the court about perseverance A lot of things, you know, of course, we get into the stuff that happens on the court, but we like to, you know, talk about perseverance and and people getting through things. And I remember you told me, you know, like I said, a million stories, but one in particular thing I wanted to bring out, um, during, you mentioned your junior and senior year, you were at an awards banquet (laughs) if I'm correct. And I want you to tell this story, but I want to kind of paint the picture. You're at an awards banquet and I guess your best friend, uh, you know, Dennis, that was your teammate. Um, you know, it was a situation that happened. Can you go into that story? Because I look at that like that to me is what probably, you know, motivated you going forward from college and, and so on. Can you talk about that experience?
1: Well, my junior year, I was the only underclassman that was starting. And Dennis, who is a good friend, he was um, the sixth man and we go to the awards banquet we had in a banquet every year i was the second leading scorer on the team my junior year and so certainly i'm going to get some kind of award um mostly approved or something and so we go to the banquet because back then trophies were huge i mean that's what we live for when you got a trophy back then man it it meant something now everybody gets a trophy they give all the kids trophies that's what's going on. <laughs> But back then, you really had to earn your trophies. And so Dennis won um, Most Improved. And he gets his award and he stands up and he says, This year I won Most Improved. Next year I'm going to win everything. And I mean, that just devastated me. So I went home after the banquet and I was on the car porch. Car porch, you know, back then, that's where you had car porches instead of garages <laughs> open. And my brother came outside, my oldest brother Nathaniel. He said, uh, Otis, why are you crying? <laughs> I, said, well, I didn't win nothing, I even have won something. He said, well, you can win something next year. I said, I'm gonna win nothing next year. I'm gonna average 30 points a game and I'm gonna win everything. He said, Otis, you can't average 30 points a game. I mean, it's high school. No one averages 30 points a game. And he was right, I didn't average 30 points a game. I averaged 33 points a game. and. Uh, it's funny because the coach came to me before the banquet He's, because I led the team in scoring, rebounding, assists, steals, free throws, everything. He said, Otis, rightfully so, you should win every award. He told me this before the banquet. He said, but we can only give you the MVP. We can't give you every award. <laughs> and I was fine with that because we had won the state championship. I wasn't worried about that. But to your point, Sean, how disappointments – motivate you, the same thing happened my junior year at the University of Houston. I played in the uh, Pan American Games my sophomore year. We won the Pan American Games in Mexico City. And the Pan American Games are pre-Olympics. Right. So the, that's the year before the Olympics. We won in Mexico City, got a gold medal, everything. I was voted MVP. So we have the Olympic trials. Dean Smith is the coach. He took seven players from the ACC, five players from his own team. I was an alternate. I was devastated. They told me I was the first alternate. If somebody got hurt or couldn't go, then I would be on the Olympic team. I I said, if somebody broke their leg, I'm not going. Because I should have made it. And Dean Smith told them, well, Otis didn't make it because he's such a great scorer. I wouldn't know how he would have fit in with the team as far as, come on, are you kidding me? You took <laughs> wow. five players from your own team. So I was so <laughs> devastated. I asked Guy Lewis, please, please, coach, get a game with North Carolina, whatever you do, please. I want to play them my senior year. And we were in Florida. I was out in front of the house and mama came. I said, oh, this coach Lewis is on the phone for you. He was calling me from Houston. I was in one of he said, I got some good news and some bad news. I said, Well, give me the bad news. He said, I couldn't schedule a game with, with um, North Carolina. They wouldn't do it. I was devastated. I said, Well, what's the good news? He said, I got a nationally televised game at UCLA on New Year's yep. Day. Because at UCLA, I scored like 43 on New Year's at Poly <laughs> Pavilion at the time, which was the record. It still might be the record at Poly Pavilion. And our John Wooten happened who wasn't coaching he was in the stands and he said that's the greatest performance he had ever seen from a guard uh at UCLA so disappointments didn't make the Olympic team was an alternate but it fueled my senior year at the University of Houston when I averaged 30 points a game at Houston shot 58 percent from the field we lost in NIT finals and I ended up being the second pick in the draft so to your point Disappointments off the court definitely fuels players to play play better once they get on the court, driven.
2: Right. So on that note, when since when you uh, got second in the draft, we're gonna go into the NBA history. Did you, by your senior year, or what, or was it junior year, that you looked at playing professional basketball out of college? Was that always? That's
1: a good. That's a good question, Sharon, because my junior year, I still wasn't thinking about the pros Or my sophomore year, but the Houston Rockets, the first two years, the uh, arena that they played in back then wasn't built, so the Mm -hmm. first two years, they played their home games at our gym, Mm -hmm. so we got in every game free, every Houston Rockets game, we were in town, we got in free. I got to go in the locker room, I I remember playing, uh, walking in, seeing the Celtics, and I was devastated because I was a big Celtics fan and uh, JoJo White was in the locker room smoking a cigarette. I'm like, he's smoking a cigarette. And I was a sophomore, I could believe that the pros would smoke cigarettes. But um, the Rockets would practice practice and play at our gym. So I got to practice against them sometime. And I remember um, Ed Ratliff and Rudy White, some of the guards who played for the Rockets, I was like a sophomore and I was holding my own. I was like, that's the first time I thought about playing pro ball. i was like, maybe I can play cause I'm, 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 I'm a sophomore and I'm out here handling these guys, you know. Mm-hmm. And actually my junior year, I thought about going hardship because back then they had the ABA. And if I had gone hardship, I would have gone first round for sure in the ABA. I don't know about the NBA, but for sure in the ABA. But because I wanted to play in the Olympics, I went back to school. But I actually was thinking about going hardship my junior year, and I talked to Mama, and she said, "No, don't don't leave school." She wanted me to play in the Olympics, and that's why I tried out for the Olympic team instead of going hardship.
0: Hmm. Now your senior year, you know you you had a lot of <laughs> accolades and, and stats to prepare you to go into the NBA. You know you led the team uh, in scoring thirty over thirty points a game. Uh, you were named an All-American, consistent choice All-American, and You were Southwest Conference Player of the Year. Um, And also later on, you know, you ended up being Southwest Conference Player of the Decade. Um, You get drafted number two in 1977 by the Kansas City Kings. What was the feeling like for you to, you know, go through the experience in high school, playing basketball, going through the experience in college, and now – you saying that, which is news to me, I didn't even know that you had a chance to leave after your junior to potentially go to the ABA. Um, you get drafted to the NBA. What was that like for you? And what was that like for the family during that time?
1: Well, coming from a small town like Winter Haven, of course, the family was ecstatic. Um, you never dreamed that, you know, you would be, you would end up in the NBA. I always played basketball, even when I went pro, for the fun and the love of the game. I really did. Getting paid was um extra, but I loved the competition. I loved playing against the best in the world every night. It was so much fun. I enjoyed playing the game of basketball, I really did. Um, the money was secondary. I never played for the money. The money is a byproduct of when you play well, they pay you. They don't just give you money. And so, uh, I just love playing the game. The camaraderie with the teammates, like especially in Kansas City, you know. Bill Ford, Sam Lacey, Scott Wedman, Josie Merriweather, Reggie King, all of those guys. Billy McKinney, Cotton Simmons, the coach. I mean, we were a family on and off the court. We did stuff all the time together. And so it was so much fun playing the game. But it's different now, you know, with the hoopla—they bring in all the players to New York and all this entertainment. When I was drafted, I already knew I was going to Kansas City. They had made contact with my agent. I had talked to him. In fact, I was in Kansas City the day of the draft. They sent before before the draft started. I went out to the Royals Park and met uh, Freddie Partex, some of the Kansas City Royals, and. Willie, I can't think of his name. A lot of the Royals players met the coaches of the Royals. They showed me around Kansas City. I knew I was gonna be drafted by Kansas City. I was in Kansas City the night before the draft. And after the press conference, I flew home to Tampa. It's the first time I ever saw Eva, my oldest sister. And I got a picture to prove it. She had a beer in her hand. I couldn't believe it. Eva our oldest, the oldest sibling had a beer in her hand, I got a picture to prove. Right. And it was uh, it was a fun night. I mean, I was I was like, actually in shock. I still couldn't believe it uh, at that party, you know, that you, it just doesn't hit home. It really doesn't hit home until training camp and you start playing in, in the league. You know, you can get drafted, you can start working out and play, but until you actually put on an NBA uniform and start yeah. playing, it's not real to you. It really isn't. Right.
0: Now, during your time in Kansas City, you know, Mm -hmm. you were there for four years. Um, Three of those years, you were named an NBA All-Star, and you also, you know, you were part of a team that went to the Western Conference Finals in 1981 against, you know, the Houston Rockets. Now, you, you know, you go through that situation. um, Now you're a free agent. Um, What was the free agent process for you like? And, Mm -hmm. you know, you were, um, at that time, the highest paid, or you signed um, as the highest paid guard in NBA history, um, million dollar contract. What led up to that? And what was that process like for you?
1: The year that I was in my last contract, the timing was just right. Um, in fact, Cotton, Cotton Simmons came to me. David Thompson was the highest paid player in the league
2: mm-hmm. at
1: that time. He was making 700000 a year. And Kansas City, they really was kind of unstable. They didn't have a lot of money, but I really wanted to stay in Kansas City. I really did. And so Cotton said, um, Otis, uh, we don't have a lot of money, but what we want to do is we want to offer you like um, 600,000 a year. And I said, hmm, I said, now (laughs) let me see. David making 700, he's the highest paid. I just had my career high on David. I just dropped 49 on him. Um, no, 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 we're not going for 600. And so at the time, it was the right of first refusal. This was the first year that this um, policy was in effect, which means that you could sign with any team for any amount of money, and your team that you're currently playing for have an opportunity to match it. Well, you know, Kansas City, they don't have any money. If you go past 600,000, they're not gonna be the match. Right. And Ted Steppian, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers at the time, he signed me and um, Bob Wolf was negotiating. He really wanted me. And he said, well, we're gonna pay you a million a year. How are you gonna say no to that? Not only that, he signed Scott Wedman. He signed James Edwards. He signed Bobby Wilkerson, all of these great players, starters for their teams. I'm like, and I had a sister in Cleveland. I'm like, it's going to be great. And I love the arena. I always had great games in Cleveland at that arena, that old arena that they used to have. I said, I'm out of here. I want to stay in Kansas City though. I wanted to stay. But they didn't have the monies and it showed because soon as I signed, Scotty left and then Sam ended up being traded to New Jersey and Phil was gone. They just didn't have the resources, and then eventually the team was gone. But we were in the Western Conference Finals. If we had kept that team together, I, I do believe we could have eventually. In fact, we were good enough to go to the finals that year. The Houston Rockets with Moses Malone beat us. They beat Ooh. us. Um, we beat them during the regular season four games to two because they were, they were in our division. We beat them four games to two. We played them six times. Phil Ford and I just gave their Guard's fits. And um but I had a severely sprained ankle. Okay. During that playoff run, I came back but I wasn't 100%. Phil Ford had had eye surgery. His eye socket was broken. He got a thumb in his eye socket. He missed the first two rounds of the playoffs. He shouldn't have played in the against the Rockets. He couldn't see out of one eye. So they just got on that um that blind side, he couldn't see. And he was scared to go to the basket. He couldn't shoot. And Dale Harris, who was the assistant coach, every time he sees me to this day, <laughs> he tells me, Otis, if you and Phil had been healthy, there's no way we beat you all in the Western Conference Finals. There's just no way. Because we beat them four out of six during the regular season. They just couldn't do nothing with us. But it was just meant for them to go. And um, Moses, Moses was a monster, man.
2: Mm-hmm. So, He was. Now, tell us a little bit about the transition from Cleveland to the Nets.
1: What ended up happening was I signed with Cleveland and Kansas city matched the offer, even though they couldn't afford it. And they traded me to New Jersey. Um, They traded me for Mike Woodson and draft picks or something. I don't know what it was, but I ended up going to New Jersey and, um, Those were tough of the most <laughs> toughest seven years I ever had. In fact, I was in New Jersey for seven years, and I played for five different coaches.
3: Wow.
1: The only 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 good thing happened in New Jersey was uh, Sean and Sydney was born. <laughs> <laughs> but playing for that team, I mean Michael Ray, I met Michael there, and he and I are good friends to this day. But Besides that, playing for five different coaches in seven years, that's five different systems. And all of the great players that came through there that they traded, I mean, it was, it was just hard. It was so unstable, whereas in Kansas City, it was just so stable. In New Jersey, they were, they were trading players every week. Somebody new was coming in, and coaches were going. It, it, it was really hard. It, it was really hard to uh, perform in New Jersey. Now,
0: I remember as a kid, you telling me, you know, a few stories during that time around, you know, about Larry Brown um, starting five black players. Um, Can you talk about, I, I, I know you're talking about what's going on on the court, but can you, you know, kind of dive into the off the court things that even, you know, a lot of players, I'm sure these days in professional sports go through, but it's really not talked about. Some people may talk about it. But how unprecedented was that at that time for Larry Brown to start, you know, five black players? And what kind of, you know, backlash did he get or heat did he get from that at that time?
1: Yeah, you're talking about um, 1981, 82. (laughs) And I remember um, he was starting five black players my first year there. And uh, he and I was in the locker room and Larry Brown was in the locker room with me. We were on the road. And he said, Otis, I wanna show you something. And uh, he started unbuttoning his dress shirt. Like, what is this man doing? He's, he's unbuttoning his shirt. And he had a rash all over his, his chest and his back. And he called it a nerve rash. And Larry Brown was receiving death threats. His kids were threatened in school. The assistant coach, somebody wrote KKK on his driveway. And all of that stemmed from um five starting five blacks i i received um i hurt my knee and in new jersey in the new york area they bet on a lot of games they bet all the time i mean if you mess up that point spread they they coming at you and so i can remember being hurt the first part of the season in new jersey i was receiving hate mail and death threats and stuff because i wasn't playing and these people serious they betting on those games. They, they want to win some money. And so I received a death threat before in the mail. Mm-hmm. And then one game, the NBA security came up to me before the game started and said, oh, we got a death threat tonight. And come to find out that in that area, in New Jersey area at that time, the mafia and the KKK and all of that was up there. But Larry started five blacks and he caught some heat from it. That's a true story, too.
0: I don't think I've ever asked you this as a player, though. Mentally, what, how did you get through that? Because, um, you know, you hear a lot of scrutiny now, like you talked about before, it's just different way the media is and rankings and everything like that. Social media, especially. At that time, for you to receive those threats, Coach Brown received those threats, how did you get through that being a young player? Like, what really got you through that process?
1: I'm going to be quite honest. Uh, at one time, I even thought about, um, especially when I, I was hurt, um I couldn't play, I missed like 30 games or 40, 30 some games my, my first year there. It was really hard. And I was thinking about even walking away from the game. I really did. Um, it, it was a hard time. Um, thankfully that I was married. Um, in fact, you wasn't born at that time cause it was my first year there. And um, it was just your mom and me and it was, um, it was tough, you know. You just, you know, you just deal with it, and 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 you really don't think, even though when you get threats like that and hate mail, you know, people just mad and pissed off. As opposed to now, they acting on it. Mm-hmm. You know, back then, I think it was more so uh, people just frustrated. But um, when you have knee surgery and you hurt, you, you can't play. What you gonna do? You know, so um, you you just deal with it.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, during that time, 1981, it's funny. I I had started college back then. um, And in New York City, it it still was very much the wild, wild west, you know? People don't realize um, during the 80s, you had so many things going on. And you have a very congested city where the crime rate was up, you know? Uh, We went through having David Denkins, the first Black. I mean... And it's not that far, it's not as far away, away as people think that the racism issues that we were dealing with in the eighties and in your, you know seventies, it just came to head now even more, but-
1: But we were a little more sheltered uh, being in New Jersey
2: mm-hmm.
1: because we lived in uh, Upper Saddle River and one of the um, exclusive areas. In fact, Joe Morris was former giant running back was right next door to me um lawrence taylor and bill parcells the head coach of the giants lawrence taylor they were around the corner from me Mm -hmm. so we were in an exclusive area we were kind of shielded or when we played the knicks so a lot of the issues they were dealing with in new york we weren't dealing with in new jersey except for the crazy fans uh, (laughs) i mean i i mean our fans i'm just being honest back then when boston or philadelphia or a team like that came over to play us They had more fans than we did. I mean, Larry Bird and those guys would get like a standing ovation during the introduction. I'm like, is this our home court or what? (laughs) It was crazy. I mean, I'm telling you, it was tough playing in Jersey. It really was.
0: Now, but during your time there, you made your fourth All-Star appearance. Mm -hmm. And you know, you guys had success. You know, you you guys beat the defending champion uh, Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of 1984 playoffs. Um, That was a big highlight. You know, also a highlight, I would say, you know, you play with two characters, um, you know, Mike Ray Richardson and Daryl Dawkins. And, you know, (laughs) always, you know, you know, want to know during that time, what was that like being on a team with that kind of, you know, those kind of characters, you know, Daryl being Chocolate Thunder, you know, with his dunks and things like that. Um, And and of course, (laughs) Michael Ray with with his stories of, you know, I, I remember sometimes being in practice, I think you told me a long time ago, he would, uh, you guys would be stretching and he'd be on the side doing his own thing, you know, shooting the basket talking about, man, I'm over here ready. You got to quit stretching and come over here. So like, what was that kind of, what was that time like for you guys?
1: I, I don't know how I would have gotten through playing in New Jersey without Daryl and Sugar. <laughs> I mean, really, Darryl was the most fun guy to be around. I never forget one time we played in, um, we played the Philadelphia 76s. We would bus up to Philly about two hour ride, two two or three hour ride, about two hours from Jersey. And um, I went to use the bathroom on the bus, the restroom. And Darryl always sat at the back of the bus because he's big, got the long legs. And I went back, and Darryl sitting in the back of the bus. He had the Bible open, which you know you think that's a good thing. But then I looked, and he had a beer in each hand. I'm like, Daryl. who reads the Bible with, with beer in their hand, bro? <laughs> that was so funny. Right. But uh, we, we had so much fun with, with Daryl And Sugar was like, he he never stretched because he couldn't touch his toes. He only got three hours of sleep a night, seriously. And uh, that boy could run all day, never got hurt. And just, and, uh, you know, he used to have a real bad stuttering problem. Not not so much now, but back then, he, he, he couldn't even get a word out. And Darryl was so crazy, he would be hitting him in the back. Come on, sugar, get it out. But um, we, we, we had a lot of fun. We really did with those two guys. I mean, uh, and to your point, Sean, that was probably the most fun I had. That particular team, when we beat um, Philadelphia in the first round, we were like an AC, they were defending champs. We beat them three times on their home court. New Jersey might as well not make the trip up here. They should just mail the score in cause ain't no way they could beat us. And we went up there and got them. And um, we had a lot of momentum. Then we went to Milwaukee in the second round and won the first game at Milwaukee. Was leading the second game in Milwaukee with like 20 um, some seconds to play. We were up one with the ball. Sugar dives on the floor, sits up and passes it, and they call traveling. Mm-hmm. If they don't call traveling, we keep the ball and we go up 2 0, winning the first two at Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And they end up beating us. You say we didn't have anything in the tank. New Jersey had taken it all out of us in order to beat them. So, uh, but that's the most fun I had. And Joe Tarb, who used to own the Nets, Stan Allback was the coach at the time. And mm-hmm. we stayed in touch with Joe until he died. In fact, we still, Duke Camps, as you know, in New Jersey for his foundation. He said the biggest mistake that he ever made as owner of the Nets was firing Stan Alba. Because we had turned the corner. That's the most fun that I had. That's when I made the All-Star team. That's when Sugar was rolling, when, when Stan was there. Darryl Dawkins had his best year when Stan was there. But everybody was benefiting from Stan because his offense was so prolific and we also played defense. But um, Joe Taub said that's the biggest mistake he ever made his own, firing Stan back.
0: Now, you finished, you know, your career um, with the Boston Celtics in 1989, um, going to the playoffs. You know, you you went there to uh, replace, you know, the injured Larry Bird um, during that time. And you retired shortly thereafter, after 12 years, you know, over, you know, 12,000 points scored, um, shooting 51% for your career. Um, what was the retirement transition like for you? And what kind of adjustment was that going from all these years of playing basketball to now you're not playing anymore? What was that like for you?
1: It was actually a relief. Interesting. Um, I didn't um, enjoy practicing anymore. When I would go to practice, even being in Boston, I didn't, I didn't want to be there. The games, I was basically going through the motion and it had a lot to do with I was, uh, of course, your mother and I were going through a divorce. I was away from you in Sydney. So um, basketball, I didn't, I didn't want to do it. Actually, I had a chance to go overseas and make a whole lot of money. But I told Bob Wolf, I said, no, I'm not going overseas. I have two young sons. I'm not going to be away from them. I'm playing ball is bad enough that I'm going through a divorce. And now you want me to go overseas and be away from them? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. But uh, interesting story. I don't tell this story a lot. My uh, when I was a free agent after I left New Jersey, um, Jerry Krause, the general manager of the Chicago Bulls, called me, and he wanted me to come in and play with Michael Jordan. And he said, Otis, um, you know, I'll play you and Michael sometime together. And but you're going to come in. I want you to back him up. You're not going. You know, I'm sure we'll play together sometime. But I want you to come in. We want to sign it. I said, Jerry, that sounds good. I said, uh, what you going to give me? What are you offering? He said, um, we're not going to give you any guaranteed money. I'm sure you'll make the team with your talent, no problem. <laughs> Jerry, <laughs> I'm a four-time All-Star. You, you're not going to give me any guaranteed money? $100,000, 200000 something? He said, we're not going to give you any guaranteed money. I promise you, you're going to make the team. And then we'll, we'll pay you well. Well, like, I can't do it, Jerry. I said, I got to have some guaranteed money. Mm-hmm. I mean something. And they end up signing Craig Hodges. Mm-hmm. And they won the championship.
3: Mm-hmm. I could
1: have could have been on that team. I spoke to Jerry Krauss personally. Not through my agent. I talked to Jerry Krause.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He did not want to give me one penny guaranteed money. He said, I'm sure you'll make the team. I'm like, no. Uh-uh. My body, you're not gonna wear me out, and then I go up there and you cut me. No, I didn't <laughs> guarantee. Fifty thousand, hundred thousand, something. Right, I didn't go.
2: And you know, you look at that now with all the guaranteed contracts and uh, how well the players are treated, and I would say it's on you, you guys, the you know the veterans that saw some of the things that needed to be changed within the NBA for the players' well-being. And that goes to the point that uh, for three years you were the chairman of the board for the retired players association can you tell us a little bit about that
1: well i really enjoyed um being on the board for seven years especially as chairman although it was one of the uh, toughest things i ever did i mean when you have 12 different ideas thoughts and opinions about how something should be it's crazy we would Mm -hmm. have literally three hour board calls on the phone. (laughs) There's nothing that important to talk about for three hours. But when you give, when the rules are that everyone has an opportunity to express themselves, you end up with three hour board calls who are members of our organization. They have insurance, health insurance, which is huge. It huge, it has saved a lot of lives. I was talking to um, Bobby Dandridge yesterday a great player who should be in the hall of fame former washington bullet and milwaukee bucks won a championship with kareem in milwaukee won one with Evan hayes in washington four-time all-star great stats he said that if he didn't have that insurance as mm-hmm. much as he has to go to the doctor there's no way he would be able to pay the bills and so that is one of the greatest things our organization has ever done provide health insurance for our former players because it is so needed. And As you know, well, you don't know because you're still a young teeny bopper. You know, <laughs> when you when you get in your 60s, your body starts really breaking down. And uh, even though I try to go, you know, just get annual checkups, you know, go to the cardiologist, go to the uh, urologist. You go see all these people to get checkups. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't like going to the doctor. You get checkups. And so that stuff is expensive. Just walking in there, the co-pays and blah. But without this health insurance, a lot of guys would be in a lot of trouble. And I'm truly, I'm thankful. And our organization does um, a great job, but the thanks goes to the NBA. Because yes. the NBA, first of all, they give us three to $4 million annually to help support our organization. And the current players, they are solely responsible, not the NBA. The current players provide insurance for the former players, not the NBA. It's the current players who decided, Chris Paul and LeBron and those guys. So when you see former players bad-mouthing LeBron and all those guys, I wish I could catch one because they could easily take that insurance away from us and we'd be in, a, be in a hurt. I mean, insurance is expensive, very expensive. Right. Now, you know,
0: with you being a chairman, you know, you had you've worn, I guess, many hats you know, after your playing days, um, you know, in addition to you being a chairman of the Retired Player Association, you, you know, worked with, you know, Hall of Fame football player, Roger Staubach, um, doing business ventures with him. Um, You also were, you know, general manager of uh, two professional sports teams and you actually won two championships. Um, You said the transit, you say you were kind of relieved from, you know, your playing days. That was a relief to get that out of the way, I guess. Um, when you started winning championships and getting to these other ventures, how was that feeling for you? And what was the difference between the general manager aspect and the chairman aspect, as opposed to just playing?
1: Playing was a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) When you are the general manager, especially I was the general manager of a G League basketball team eventually, um, you're responsible for every aspect of the organization, especially in minor league basketball, which means I pick the dance team coordinator. I had to be at the dance team tryouts. the trainer, the ticket guy, the marketing, head marketing guy, the coach, the assistant coach. I mean, every aspect of the organization, the hotels where the team visiting team is gonna stay in, travel, buses, uniforms, sponsorships everything crosses your desk when you're the general manager of a minor league basketball team, especially starting from scratch. These were not established teams, so you mm-hmm. got to pick this facility you're going to play in. The coaches create the tickets, the marketing package. I mean, it's, it's a huge undertaking, but it's so gratifying to win uh, a couple of championships as a general manager. And I actually played in the CBA before I went to the Celtics, played for Henry Bibby in the CBA back when the CBA was prominent and won a CBA championship. I have a CBA championship ring with the Tulsa Fast Breakers. So that was fun Mm -hmm. also. But um, being a general manager is a tough job, especially on the minor league level. And I know it's tough in the NBA as well, but it was very gratifying, taught me a lot, especially with uh, marketing and sponsorships and um, meeting with corporate giants. It, it, Mm -hmm. It was huge, great learning experience for me.
2: But going from that, I know you do. Well, I know you do a lot of things with the with the youth, and you're very committed to, especially empowering the community and letting them know that there's adults that's willing to help um, through your Ball Stars uh, youth camps in the summer. And just overall, I know if you can share with our audience a little bit about that of you know, because I know that's one of your passion, just really giving back to the community, especially at at risk youth.
1: Yeah, and uh, Michael and I have been doing that for like <laughs> nine years. And it actually started out after we won the championship mm-hmm. in uh, Lawton, Oklahoma. We actually used to uh, charge the kids a minimum fee to help, you know, freight the mm-hmm. Uh We used to charge the kids like a hundred bucks. And, but we came to find out Sharon that even a hundred bucks was a lot for a lot of these kids, especially underserved kids in those areas. And so we decided um, to do camps for free and actually Mm -hmm. ask sponsors to pay for the cost of the camp. And as each year passed, I've come to uh, understand that it's such a great need, not just for basketball camp, but life skills, these kids, especially our, 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 our brown and black kids. Uh, they don't have the opportunity to experience uh, the stuff that we offer them, but I'm more concerned with kids um, being able to communicate. Uh, kids knowing the importance of uh, education, uh, health awareness, I mean, hygiene. That, uh, when I was growing up, I used to get a whipping if I didn't brush my teeth. You know, a lot of these parents these days, you know, the kids, they come to camp, they, 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 they don't comb the hair, their teeth is not brushed. Um, they don't wear deodorant, you know? And so um, we wanna focus on the life skills. That's why we've started, um, you haven't joined us the last few years, but we even have the fire department come out and teach the kids CPR. We have a professional who actually comes out and talks to the kids about social media because these kids don't know they just they're sending these photographs and pictures and and one of the, the the um speakers explained to the kids one of these high school kids he was a senior in high school and he was sending pictures to this girl who was in junior high school he was sending her new pictures well he, they arrested him you, you can't do that these kids think they can just send new pictures and just oh we just having fun. No no that's a crime. You can't do that. And so the dangers of social media on one hand is great. On the other hand, there's a danger. And plus these men, they be you thinking you're talking to a young man and he want to meet you somewhere and it's a grown-up. Mm-hmm. And so we we want to talk to the kids about that. Basketball is secondary. And but what really hit home for me last year, and I need to send you. Um, a copy of the sponsorship packet that we're sending out this year. Last year, we were not able to have camps for the kids. So we gave them backpacks and school supplies. And we went in those same neighborhoods that we normally go in. But a lot of the Hispanic population came out, whites and Hispanics, poor whites and Hispanics were standing in line to receive because we gave the kids over 30 items for school supplies, 30 items already packed. We gave them regulation backpacks. And so that touched me so much in Winter Haven and, and in uh, Bell Glade and those areas that I'm implementing that full time. And all the stuff we gave them last year during the pandemic, we're doing that same thing again this year. And going forward, we're gonna do it because it, it just makes such a huge difference. You can see the parents and you can see it in their eyes. They come up with three or four kids and they're just poor right. and it's needed. And so this year, I'm I'm happy to say we're gonna do that again this year like we did during the pandemic. All
3: right. That's wonderful. And
1: those, you
0: know, those camps are always fun. I always enjoy that, you know, Sharon, you know, Sharon's been around it and you know, those kids is coming in. A lot of the kids are funny, (laughs) you know, each year we always get different characters. Um, You know, what would your message, I, I know the message that we talk about during the summertime when I'm helping you with your camps, you know, about the dangers of social media, alcoholism, marijuana, drugs, all of that
3: mm-hmm.
0: for players or students who are aspiring athletes, what would be your message? You being a former NBA player, and not just the basketball, but just the journey of everything you know now, what would be your message to aspiring uh, athletes that want to get into playing sports or in-, in particular
1: basketball? Well, you know, hindsight is always twenty-twenty, mm-hmm. and even in high school, when you look back, the, the stuff that you put in your body, you know, the diet, you know, the burgers and the fries and the shake, you know, when you're young, you just, your eating habits are so bad. Uh, for athletes who really are inspired and really want to make it, I would say, first of all, you you have to take care of your body because that is the tool that is going to get you where you want to go. So that's why LeBron can play for so long he got a chef he eats right. He gets his rest. He has a massage therapist. He, he, he spends millions, millions on his body. That's why he can play. You, you have to take care of your body. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys, they break down because they want to hang out. They want to smoke weed. They want to do this. And they're not taking care of their bodies. LeBron takes care of his body first and foremost. You have to do that. I mean, that's, that's when I look back and I wouldn't change a thing Mm-hmm. but um, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't be drinking um, two or three, four beers the night for a game <laughs> <laughs> thinking I'm young and it's not going to affect me and still go out and get 27 points. But imagine how many you would have had if you, you my mom used to tell me all the time, she said, "Oh, it, it makes you sluggish the next day. I know you think it's out of your system, but you can't stay up all night drinking four or five beers and then go play the game. I mean, so you you have to really, um, and and these guys, that's the advantage they have nowadays. They have nutritionists, they have massage Mm -hmm. therapists, they have strength and conditioning coaches. They have all of that now. So that's why these guys can play longer. But for the young kids, I I would say, start out taking care of your body and it'll be a habit. And these kids these days, though, they they have all the advantages. Not the underserved kid, but most of the kids... They have they have advantages. A lot of these underserved kids, and that's why what you do, Sean, your your goal is to get a lot of these kids who don't have an opportunity to be seen to be seen. And,
3: uh,
1: that's needed because you you don't have coaches and, and scouts in West Palm Beach going down to look at the kids in Belle Glade. That's a third world country to them. They don't go there. They're not going down there to recruit those kids unless they're playing football, but they're not going down there for basketball. They're afraid. A lot of I'm talking about white people in West Palm Beach are afraid to drive and go down to Bear Glade. Cause they're afraid for their lives. They're not going to Bear Glade. They, when was the last time you saw on TV a kid from Bear Glade playing basketball? You see it in football. Right. right. It's usually a lot of football players,
3: yeah.
2: right?
1: Not basketball. Right.
2: Yeah. And you're right. I mean, just that experience with you guys in uh, Bell Glade, and again, I and I never forget. First of my soul, Bell Glade, because again, I was in Orlando, and I couldn't understand like, oh, it's tough here. And I had my little, you don't know tough. I'm from New York. I'm from the Bronx, baby, right? And my mouth just opened when I saw the level of poverty, and for me, was. It was an eye open space. I said, this is not happening in the 2000." You know, I I was I still had a hard time wrapping my head around it. That, you know, they showed me like a trailer. It says, oh, you have 14 people living there. I'm like, what? You know, and you don't, people forget about these very rural areas, what's going on, especially the high risk in the community. These kids are, don't go out, you know, some of these young ladies who are having babies at 13, 12 years old, and my mind was like, well, are you kidding me, but just go in there, you know, um, I think also feel my passion for just making a difference for young ladies and women and being so engaged as I am. Uh, and I just love how you guys just make basketball you know, as a tool to make a difference saying you can be better.
3: So we
0: had Jeffrey Jordan on about a month, a few months ago, and he described how Michael and Juanita really didn't push their kids to play sports. Um, and he was like, yeah, if, y'all, if you want to play sports, I guess Michael was like, hey, you want to play sports? That's fine. If not, you know, you don't have to. You go, you do other things. So Jeffrey talked about how he played football and other things like that. Well, you know, we had mom on and I asked her, I said, well, mom, why did you and why did you always just say, you know, you don't have to play basketball if you don't want to and blah, blah, blah. And she told me, you know, she knew what um, I would have to deal with and all of that. So I'm asking you for the first time, you know, I remember I was in seventh grade and, you know, I was trying for the teams and even eighth grade when I made the team everything, you would be like, you know what, Sean, you don't have to play basketball if you don't want to. <laughs> and I'll be like, i in eighth grade. Like, why does he keep saying that? And even in high school, you know, with the all that stuff we were going through at Bonner and you know, we were winning everything, you would still say, you know, you don't have to play basketball. What, what was that as a, as a dad that made you
1: say that, like repeatedly? Because people think just because a father has played a particular sport that the son automatically has to play that particular sport. And you look at the hoopla, Tiger Woods let his son play in a tournament. And you see how the people just went ballistic, want to interview the kid and talk to him. And now the pressure is going to be on that kid to be great like his dad. Um, it, it, it wasn't important to me that you and Sydney played basketball. And if you remember after every game, I'd actually, first of all, did you have fun? What you learned? Yeah, I want you to win, but the game is supposed to be enjoyable. So I mm-hmm. could care less as to whether or not you play, play basketball or not, or any sport for that matter. I mean, it, cause your value to me as a son is, has nothing to do with whether or not you play basketball. And actually it's gonna heighten the expectations on me too because, oh, is that your son? Like he's supposed to be good because he, not necessarily, <laughs> just because you somebody's son on me you're supposed to be good. You all turned out to be very good basketball players, but I wasn't gonna put that added burden on you. No way. Um, unfortunately, and you know, just the way Yahweh, him had it work out, you went to a um, school where you wasn't pushed. You know, you 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 played at a, a school with a competition. I mean, you didn't have anybody on your team that could push you. The coach couldn't push you. First of all, he couldn't push you because he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> and that's the truth of the matter and you know I never got involved with that I never said anything I just sat in the stands never never called him or complained he didn't have a clue and you all had a real real good team your one year especially your senior year but the guy didn't have a clue but I wasn't getting involved with that I mean I I let your mom yell in the stands and yell at the coach and the players <laughs> I wasn't doing that I was there to support you and enjoy watching you play wanted you to do well but I, I wasn't trying to push you to play basketball. Sydney either. Right.
2: You, you were in the helicopter right. dad. Let me you, see
1: in, in fact, um, I'm glad Sean brought that up because my oldest son, your brother, Terrence, he, he was a great running back at Winter Haven High School. And he got an offer to play at Temple University mm. to play football. But because of the peer pressure, he felt that he had to play basketball. So instead of going to temple to play football, he wanted to go to school at the University of Houston and wanted me to get him a tryout. First of all, they don't just give you scholarships. <laughs> so I he was in school and the coach wanted him to come out doing the preseason where you lift weights and run and do all of that. Terrence didn't want to do that. I guess he just figured, no, when they start playing, that's when I want to go. And the coach ended up telling me that he said, "Oh, this It's not fair, first of all, that your son wouldn't come out during the preseason workout. He didn't make it. But why turn down the football scholarship, a free ride to college and try to play basketball? Maybe basketball is not your sport. If, If you got a football offer, it seemed to me you're pretty good in football. But because he wanted to try to play basketball, he did and he tried out that one time and it's obvious he wasn't serious about basketball because he never tried to try it again or get in shape and, and do that, you know, so.
0: Well, we always ask our guests, um, it could be off the court, on the court, uh, what does being an American baller mean to Otis Birdsong?
1: Me being an American baller means that I'm the dad of the original creator, of American ballers.
0: <laughs> I like that. All right, and I have to ask you also. I see you wearing a University of Houston shirt. Um, how far do you think your your former Cougars are going to go
1: in the in the tournament this year? Well, I don't get um, emotional, and just because I went to school somewhere, I like the team. I don't. I don't say where well, they're going to win it all. I I really do like this team, though. I think um, for sure, I'd be surprised if they didn't make the Final Four. Uh, I don't know as far as winning it all, but I'm, they got a very, very good team. In fact, um, I stay in touch with Coach Sampson throughout the year. He told me Sunday that he really, really loves this team. The Second best defensive team in the nation. They're the number one offensive team in the nation, and they have scores. And um, I, I love the makeup of this team. I think they, they have the ability and capability of winning it all. But I truly think they should be able to get to the final four. I really do. Got very good teams. In fact, they, they lost three games this year. I was telling you, Deborah this morning, and I saw the game. They should have been undefeated. They lost two close ones, and then the one game they laid an egg at East Carolina. East Carolina shot like 60 something percent from the field, and Houston shot like 30 something percent. One of those games, it happened, and they got beat by. It terrible East Carolina team so they really should have been undefeated this year but I, I like the chances I really do. You. I
0: appreciate your time and uh you being on the show
1: always welcome back yeah my 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 partner told me that um he's going to do the show next week
2: yep we got mm-hmm.
1: sugar on next week that's good you, you have my sympathy <laughs>
2: <laughs> don't worry you'll manage <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I'm just kidding he'll be great <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, appreciate your dad. All right, man, love you. late too. See you, Sharon.